morning church. Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Jonah. We'll be reading the whole book of Jonah and as I skip through the verses I'll say it out loud so that uh, we're going to be on the same page. So that'll be book of Jonah starting chapter 1 verses 1 to 7. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that he will not perish. We will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Chapter 2 From inside a fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents rolled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed waves wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pits. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message. It the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a a day's journey into the city proclaiming. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Chapter 4, verse 10. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this planet, about this plant, though you did not tender it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also many animals. Amen.
Well, good morning. And uh, I was going to, I was going to say to you, it's uh, it's really, really good to see so many old faces. But uh, old faces, that was a mistake. <laughs> let me say, uh, it's good to see so many familiar faces. That sounds better, right? Okay. We're going to look at uh, Jonah together as a as a church this morning and I won't tell you where it is because it may take a while to find it but I want to start start Jonah with a passage uh, in his life uh, written about in second Kings I'll read it for you you want to find out where it is I'll uh, have a chat with you later on and you can check that uh, it's really there also in your Bible so a passage from Second Kings. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from the far north, Libohamath to the far south, the Sea of the Araba, far north, far south, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gathhefer, which is uh, just about a mile or so south of uh, Nazareth. So Jonah, before the prophecy actually happens, has a, an amazing and successful career as a prophet. He comes to Jeroboam, the king of the northern tribes, and says that your kingdom is going to expand. You can't go west, Mediterranean. You can't go east, Jordan and desert. You can't go this way, this way. But the kingdom is going to expand to the far north and the far north to far south. And uh, Jonah really enjoyed that prophecy. And Jeroboam, the king, also enjoyed that prophecy. And I suspect that uh, Jeroboam may have said to Jonah, I know you prophets have a schedule full and uh, you're, uh, you're doing a lot of stuff and uh, you work from morning till night, but uh, if you have time, Jonah, come and stay for a decent meal, a good meal here at the palace in Samaria. And he may have stayed because he and the king got along well after this great prophecy. But a few weeks later, God asked them to speak again. And the response is altogether different this time. Joni, we want you to go to Nineveh, the largest city in the world of its time, about 800 and so B.C., the largest city on the stage of history, and Assyria uh, still carries the reputation well-earned of being perhaps the most cruel and uh, torture some nation that has ever wandered the face of the earth. Their uh, exploits in sheer cruelty and uh, killing and killing with style, every neighboring tribe, every rival nation was unparalleled in the ancient world. And uh, they were not a friend of Israel. So Jonah does, I think, what uh, probably some of us would do, we may not say it in, in quite these words, but uh, Jonah would say, 
Um, Lord, let me know. Let me know what your will is. Let me know what your will is, and then I'll check to see if it fits in with my plans. Have you ever done that to the Lord? Let me know where your, what your will is, and I'll see if it fits in with my plans. And uh, expansion of Israel fit into his plans. Now, yes, Lord. Uh, a chance to repent and change and come to see God in a different and a new way for Nineveh and Assyria that did not fit into Jonah's plans. So he got out his version of an 8th century B.C. map, and he found that Nineveh was about as far east as he could go, way over there, and uh, he checked the map going west, and about as far as he could go west was a small coastal town in Spain called Tarshish. God said, east. Jonah said, I don't like the call. I'll go west. East, west. And they were not on the same page. So Jonah went down from Gathifer to a small coastal village uh, called um, Joppa. And as often happens, you decide to follow someone else than God, and things seem to fall in place for you, and things seem to work. And amazingly enough, a ship was waiting. A ship was waiting for Tarshish. They did not go every day or every week, I'm sure. And Jonah dug into his 8th century pockets, and he had enough to pay for the fare. And off he went, not on board, but down into the hold where he could sleep away his uh, gnawing guilt about saying no to Jehovah, saying no to his God. And he could feel that inside, so he went down to, to sleep it off. It's interesting that in Jonah 1, the word down is mentioned four times. Now, down to the coast and Joppa, down into the ship and down into the hold where he slept. And as he goes west, I love this little feature that you shouldn't miss in the book of Jonah. You shouldn't miss it. But God easily could have said, Jonah's here. I want him there. He's going here. So I'm going to check the unemployment queue in Capernaum or Nazareth or wherever and see if I can find someone a bit more uh, ready to respond and do what I'm asking him to do. I'm looking for a willing prophet, a willing and even asking a bit much, a cheerful and willing prophet, cheerful and willing. Jonah certainly is not qualifying here, so God goes to the unemployment queue and finds a substitute, finds someone else to do what he's asking. Oh, no. God said, Jonah, I want you. Jonah, I want you. And the inside story now starts to unravel. First chapter, the inside the ship story. Second chapter, inside the fish chapter. The third, inside the city, chapter. And finally, the fourth, inside the booth, hidden and covered by the cucumber plant, which provided him shade, as we'll see. But it's inside the ship and the fish and the city and the booth, the four-part inside story. And God is chasing Jonah because he said, I want not anybody who will do my will, anybody who will salute and do what I ask him to do, but I'm going to waste all kinds of energy energy and ingenuity and head west across the ways, which I normally am not in the habit or very fond of doing. 
but I want Jonah. He's heading west, I'm going west. And so he does with you. You may say, well, there's someone older, someone more serious and experienced in faith, and he can do this other job that the, uh, the church leadership or Pastor Brent is asking me to do. Uh, there's someone older, someone wiser, someone who's been at the church far longer than I. Who am I? I'm not even sure God really knows my first name. He certainly doesn't know what I can contribute, what I can do. And I'm not sure, so sure either. But as he chased Jonah, I promise, so he will chase you. He chased Jonah 2,800 years ago in 2017. He will chase you. So God has west, and he controls the storm, a violent storm. The sailors are called in the Hebrew salt. They're the sailors, they're the salt. On the Mediterranean, heading to the coast of Spain, as far as the map would go. There's no map beyond that. And there's a wild storm, and they're afraid for their lives. And they call to their gods, no response. Well, there's this chap sleeping in the hold. Let's check with him. Maybe his god uh, is angry or upset for some reason. So they checked with Jonah, and Jonah has an amazing response. Sometimes we do that. It amazes me. Sometimes we do that, but it amazes me even more. Sometimes I do that. Now, I have my catechism answer ready, but the catechism answer comes from the gray cells, not from my heart. It comes from here and not from here. I am fleeing from the living God, says he, the maker of earth and the sea. I'm fleeing from the God who made the sea on the sea. And it appears that uh, made perfect sense to Jonah. It does not make sense to me. I'm fleeing from God on the sea, the one who made the sea. He dares to say in his little catechism response. So finally, he's convinced that uh, he was so opposed to this opposing nation, Assyria, that wanted to uh, ramrod Israel into the ground and uh, subdue them, uh, torture them, kill them. He said, I am not going there. They're not worthy of the change. They're not Jews after all. They're Assyrians, God. So he said, I'd rather have suicide than a call a mission like that. He said, just toss me overboard. I'm quite sure things, good things will happen. Good things will happen. So finally, the men, they refuse at first. They toss more uh, luggage and had, uh, commercial stuff that they're bringing to Spain. They take all that stuff and they toss it overboard so it's as light as possible. But the, the sea just grew tempestuous against them, says the text. It grew tempestuous. And they said, hey, there's no other way out. And they took Jonah and uh, they tossed him overboard. And immediately the sea became calm. They tossed Jonah. He disappears under the waves. And suddenly the waves are not like this, but like this. And they immediately praise God and they give him a sacrifice, uh, an offer right there. And they say, we want to obey you and do what you ask. Uh, clearly, you're, you're part of this story. You have something to do with this storm and this man deep in the hold. You've got something to do with it. We don't want to be on your wrong side. So they did all of this and they said, they said, as the group in chapter 3 will do, which I think is lovely, perhaps or maybe God will respond to us. Perhaps, maybe, 
God will respond to us. None of us said the same thing on the other side, the same thing in chapter 3. Who knows? God may respond to our repentance. Who knows? See, but perhaps, maybe, who knows? Those are not the words of merit. Those are the words of mercy. We're not presenting to you our merit. We're depending hard and leaning hard on your mercy. If we're going to move forward, experience another day, if we're going to get to know this God of Jonah, it's not our merit that we offer to you, and hopefully it's enough and long enough and sincere enough, but it's your mercy that we're banking on and leaning on. Not our merit, your mercy. Chapter 1 and 3, these two very different groups of people respond to God in the same way, and God likes their response. But in chapter 2, God is still busy with Jonah. Still busy with Jonah. He's tossed overboard. And chapter 2, as uh, was read for us a few minutes ago, chapter 2 is the story of uh, Noah's disappearing under the waves. And uh, in my reconstruction of events, a lot of us say, well, Jonah had a near-death experience. I would argue this morning, and you are certainly free to disagree, but I would argue this morning that Jonah died under the sea level, under the tremendous waves and all the strange stuff underneath there, the fish and the the kelp and the stuff that was just strangling him and he couldn't get loose. And uh, for one, Jesus quotes and compares himself to Jonah. He does with nobody else, no other prophet, no other prophet. He compares himself with Jonah three days and three days. He compares himself, but the language in chapter 2 is used elsewhere in the Psalms for a death experience. So that uh, words like, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me forever. But you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So I think Jonah died under the waves. And then God sends a fish along. Again, a a strong God who can control the fish. And uh, we, of course, wonder. We have wondered in the past. We may still not have cleared that one up is uh, what about this fish? Can it happen? Has it happened, right? Can it happen? Has it happened? It can happen. It can happen. Because it's not the beluga whale, it's the sperm whale. The sperm whale is the largest mammal air-breathing, right? It's the largest mammal air-breathing of all animals known to man. So it's a mammal that breathes air. And it has the stomach back here, and in front of the stomach is a laryngeal, like larynx, a laryngeal pouch. And the pouch is large enough to hold a Jonah or to hold you. It can hold you. And it's there right behind his mouth, and it's it's, it's air enclosed, and you can survive in that pouch. And you say, that that sounds a bit weird. I didn't know that. Maybe a stronger question is, well, has it actually happened? Can it happen? Yes. Has it happened? Yes. In 1927, there's a group on a whaler, whaling ship, 1927, 
and they were near the Falkland Islands off the coast of Argentina, and one man in a violent storm was pitched overboard. His name is Ambrose Wilson. He was pitched overboard, and they didn't know what happened to him. We've lost Ambrose. I'll have to break the news to his wife. This is very, very sad. But then somebody harpooned the whale, and coming out of the laryngeal pouch of a sperm whale that they harpooned in the Atlantic, close to Argentina, was Ambrose Wilson. He had been inside that pouch for three days, and apart from being bleached, so he was whiter than they'd ever seen him. He was absolutely bleached white, but he lived. He lived to tell the story, 1927. And could it happen again? Who knows? Jonah's response was when he finally swallowed up and he recognized that God had saved him in the middle of the ocean, he knew the Mediterranean, which he was scared of, God was not scared of, and uh, God sent this fish along, had a pouch, a little room prepared for Jonah, and for three days uh, to add weight and credibility to his son's experience outside of Jerusalem in Joseph of Arimathea's grave. Very similar experience. And Jonah responds, again, a catechism response, but this time it may have been a bit deeper and more serious than that. It's hard to know. But in his prayer in chapter 2, he quotes 10 psalms. He quotes 10 psalms, one after the other. And he says some really striking and impressive things and wonderful things. I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. What I have vowed, I will make good. I'm ready to go to Nineveh. Salvation comes from the Lord. That sounds like a Peter or a Paul whose company you don't so quickly put Jonah into. But ten times, and we wonder nowadays, is it like some of us, and all too often someone like me, who knows the scripture, I know the Psalms pretty well, I know the scripture pretty well, I can quote a lot of verses, I can tell you things that uh, you suspected, but I've studied them, I've been to seminary after all, but often I really wonder, in practical choices that face me, do I know Scripture, or do I know Scripture's God as well? And the point is not to rattle off the texts, but the point is to have a good conversational relationship with the author, isn't it? It's not do I know the Psalms, but do I know who wrote them and who passed them on for my enjoyment and my instruction? And so I'm not quite sure where Jonah was in chapter 2. It sounds good. It sounds really good. And he's also bleached white. I'd like to say that for a good evangelist, you need something in 2017. A couple of years ago, that was not so true. But nowadays, you need a gospel that is both verbal and visual. Verbal and visual. And they, they match. So Ambrose Wilson, he didn't need to say a thing. He had an audience. How did you get to look like that, Ambrose? I will have to explain this to your wife. Uh, I'll, I'll explain it. <laughs> and Jonah, the same thing. You know, he's bleached white, and as he lands on the shore, he has now east to go to Nineveh, and he's bleached white, and he's both a verbal and a visual message, and this time he's ready to go. Now, he still isn't completely turned around. You still may wonder about ten psalms he quotes, I can't even quote five psalms. He must have been a really special man, prophet of the divine of God. Um, many of us would say what a friend of mine likes to say. 
Um, you know, if I were a whale and I had swallowed a Jonah by mistake, I'd get as close to the shore as I could and I'd, I'd vomit him out as well. I, Jonah is something I would spit out. I don't want him inside my uh, confines of my, my fish body. So he spits him out somewhere near Joppa and he brushes himself off, looks at himself, wonders how to explain it, and he's ready now to go to Nineveh in chapter 3. What I'm going to leave you with is not only the inside, the inside story, inside uh, ship and fish and city and plant, but also two main lessons that I'm trusting will make a difference for you and help you in very practical ways in the coming week to go, early on in the new school year and church year. Two lessons, one is in chapter 1 and 2, the other in chapter 3 and 4. It's simple, it's practical, but that's my hope and my dream and my prayer that these two lessons of Jonah will somehow translate themselves here and here for you and that Jonah will surface and come to mind for you this coming week, once or twice at least, I hope. And the main lesson, it's as simple as I can possibly make it, in chapters 1 and 2, is that the God who patrols the Mediterranean, uh, the Hebrews were scared of water, really scared of water. They might be in Joppa or Tel Aviv now and put a toe in the water, but to swim, no, we don't go there. We don't go there. They don't like water. They don't like the sea, the Mediterranean out there. But God is very comfortable. He knows what's on the sea, the struggling ship. He knows what's under the sea, exactly where the sperm whale are cruising and, and how to fetch one to rescue and then to deposit Jonah and get the next chapter in the story underway. So lesson in chapters 1 and 2, God's hands are stronger than you think. God's hands are stronger than you think. And I would ask you to remember that and call it to mind when you think about that first thing in the morning, that last thing, first thing in the morning and the last thing at night that bothers you and, and hurts you and worries you. There's something about the marriage relationship. Marriage it isn't what it was. Uh, your wife uh, eager to see you uh, she's definitely fond of you she loves you she does things that she doesn't need to do you say that's, that's a long time ago that's ancient history uh, she tolerates me nowadays she tolerates me nowadays and the marriage is not what it was and I don't want to go through the hassle of divorce and what the church will say about that and living alone so we just kind of Survive. We live it out, but uh, the marriage is not even a decent friendship. Or maybe it's one of your children that has disappointed you. You've raised him or her just the way you have the others. You have two or three or five or fifteen children, and that one is such a concern. And uh, what do we do? What do we stop doing? And you wonder what it is that will bring him home. And you say, God, it doesn't have to be tomorrow, but this week would be nice if there was some spark of response, some spark of life. I don't know what in the world it is that we did or we said to turn them off like that. And there's no concern for church at all. The music that they listen to, um, I can't approve of that. I try to stop whining and complaining, but that's not my kind of music. That's not God's kind of music. And it's my child. 
We have four, three are turning out well, but what about the fourth? What about the fourth? First thing in the morning, last thing at night that you dream about, uh, is God strong enough to see that, know about that, and do something about it? Jonah is very simple. He is capable, he's capable of taking his hands and moving through a vast ocean with civilizations around its, its shores and a whale cruising underneath to find Jonah at just the right time, take him all the way back without a map, all the way back to Joppa and spit him out on Joppa's beach. And the whale goes back to what do, doing what whales do. But God orchestrated the whole affair. So if he can do that to a sperm whale in 800 BC in the ancient Near East, can he do something about your wayward son or daughter? Your um, lack of responsive husband or wandering wife? You know what the answer is, don't you? If he can act that way in Jonah 1 and 2, he can act that way in 2017 for you. Yes, he can. So Jonah goes. He heads east this time. Goes to Nineveh. Three days travel. Probably, I'm gathering, there's uh, four Nineveh cities. And to go around them is 60 miles. And maybe just the 60-mile route, 60 miles all the way around four cities. I think more likely what it means, three days journey, is to hit you know, every marketplace and every significant town square and every place where people gather for for shopping or gossip or both. And he knows all those places, and he's got his own little message, same old message for 40 days, same old message. Uh, he says, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. So Nineveh will be overturned. There's always judgment about God's messages to us. Forty more days, there's always grace to his messages as well. It will be overturned, judgment. Forty more days, grace. And this chapter is wonderful in detailing change in three areas. Jonah changed. He was going west. Now he's going east, right? West, east. Jonah has changed. He's a different man, even though he has the same old eight-word sermon, eight words. Uh, You might be very grateful later on today for a short sermon like eight words. Mine are considerably longer. Uh, I'm sorry about that. But... uh, he changed, and he had a message, and on every street corner of Nineveh, he gave that message, 40 more days. And what a change in Nineveh, an absolute change in Nineveh from the bottom on up. It came not from the top down, an uh, order from the, from the king. And, of course, in a nation like that, the king says, jump, and the Ninevites say, how high? That's the way the society worked. But it came from the bottom, and it reached the king, and he agreed. He agreed. So Jonah changed, and Nineveh changed from the very bottom up in sackcloth and ashes for repentance, worn by men and women and by children and by cows, of all things, just in case. They say, perhaps God will listen to us. Perhaps God will listen to us. This is a very different Nineveh than 150 years from now. 150 years later, Nahum, another prophet, writes about the destruction of Nineveh. They didn't learn their lesson. 150 years later, they were wiped off the face of the earth. 
and I walked around the ruins of Nineveh near Mosul, Mosul, in northern Iraq some years ago, and the, the ruins are still there, mute ruins, saying, this is what happens if you take on carelessly or lightly. But 150 years earlier, they had an amazing response to Jonah. They changed. Jonah changed. So did, the, so did they. But so did God. Jonah changed. Nineveh changed. And all of it because God changed. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction. He did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. How do you figure that with other scriptures that say, I, the, God, the Lord God, do not change? Malachi 3, there's other texts, there's many. I, God, do not change. My only sense of putting this together is that God because his heart never changes, will on occasion change his mind. Because his heart is consistent. Consistent, he wants for us what is best, what is good for us, and what is right. That's what he wants for us. His heart ticks for us, relentlessly, stubbornly. And because it does, his heart, his mind will change from time to time. And in the Hebrew, there's a word called uh, nalam, Nalam, and it means in Hebrew to turn your anger in on yourself. It's not shuv, the normal repent. This is a unique repent, and it's used in all the 40-day passages. Now, God turns the anger he had for Nineveh in their lifestyle and their total self-security, and he turns that in on himself to say, I'll accept the punishment, I'll bear the punishment, so Nineveh can approach me, and they can stand on their feet again, and have a sense of uh, purpose and a sense of joy. I'll do it for them, and I'll turn that anger that I felt right in myself. And if you read Jonah 3 properly, you need to see in the background somewhere, in the shadows, it's difficult to spot him, but you look, you'll see him, is Jesus on the cross outside of Jerusalem, where God, in a grand way, turned his anger against sin against himself. Even so, his son would say, Not my father, why have you forsaken me? My God. There's distance. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's silence. And there's three hours of darkness between 12 and 3. And then Jesus dies and he says, all I've asked, all I've been asked, it is finished. So it is finished. God, you've got what you want. Satan, you are done. You are finished as well. And the task of trying to impress God for folks like you and I sitting in the pews this morning is finished as well. You can say, well, perhaps, or maybe, or who knows. And God will respond to you if you don't bank on your own merits, but on his mercy. And he turns that anger against sin against himself, Nalam. And that happens at the tail end of chapter 3. And by this time, I've always wondered, why does Jonah add chapter 4? 1, 2, and 3 are wonderful. Why add a fourth chapter? Why? One reason is because scripture is so incredibly believable is that it's unlike all other histories written in the uh, ancient Near East, all other histories have stories of success. And they, they go to war, but they win. And there are stories that I have read of the war between King A and King B, and you read the annals of King A and King B, and they both win. 
And you say, well, that's not very credible. That's not very believable. He wins, he wins, and they fought each other. But uh, this, is, this is candid stuff. Uh, God is vulnerable. And uh, at the tail end here, chapter 4, even that was not enough for Jonah. Even that. In spite of the response of the sailors, the response of, uh, of Nineveh, and Jonah's great prayer in chapter 2, what does he do? He sits on a hill on the east side of the city, and he's sitting there, grouchy, complaining, um, difficult to get along with. You know, the more I read Jonah, the more I pray for his wife. Uh, he's a difficult guy. And he just said, well, I'm waiting for God to change his mind. And he changed the city, he changed his mind, and I'm a fool. I said, you'll be overthrown. But they heard the yet 40 days. They focused on a different part of my message. And I'm angry. I'm upset. Do you do well to be angry? Three times. Yes. Yes, I do. And he's sitting there. And uh, God provides a cucumber plant to give him shade. And then in one night, I love this about God, he controls the sperm whale, the largest mammal known to man. And three chapters later, he controls the little worm. God is not picky. He's in charge of the sperm whale. He's in charge of the little worm. And the little worm burrows underneath and destroys the cucumber plant. And Jonah, who's probably bald, uh, feels the heat coming, and he's even more angry. Do you do well to be angry? And uh, there's a man called uh, John Carlyle. Uh, I've got him at home on my shelf. His book is called uh, You, Jonah. And he writes a series of poems about Jonah. And he captures one so well. I thought, I need to pass this on to you. It is so good. He says, in chapter 4, Jonah is a grouch, sitting on his hill east of Nineveh, peering at the city, and just slowly, slowly waiting for God to come around to his way of thinking. But at the same time, God is in his heaven, looking down at his prophet, And slowly, slowly, he's waiting for Jonah to come around to his way of loving. He's waiting for Jonah to come around to his way of loving. Because he says in the end, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The only book in scripture that ends with a question mark. The only one that ends with a question mark and it's a lovely conversation I would love to have with some of you. Uh, would you expect to see Jonah in heaven? Would you expect to see expect to see Jonah in heaven? Because the Jonah of chapter 2, I could see him again. The Jonah in chapter 4, I'm not so sure. Uh, chapter 1 and 3, miraculous, a, sailor, uh, a ship full of sailors ship full of sailors, here's a city full of Ninevites, and a great response, perhaps, maybe, who knows. In the second chapter, Jonah gives me a glimmer of hope, and then he puts his thumb on it and says, no, that's not me. Uh, God's agenda is far bigger than mine is. I'm for the Hebrews and their salvation, and God says, all the way from Genesis 1-1 onward, my agenda was the earth, the world. I created the heavens and the earth heavens and the earth, and all of earth's citizens and inhabitants are in my, uh, my target scene. I want all of them to come to know me, Jews and non-Jews. 
and uh, John says, I can't handle that wide of a, a lens. I only operate with a telephoto lens. God says, my angle on my camera is a wide angle lens. And when he says 120,000, he's talking about children. You don't know if your right hand from your left, children under two, right? On the right hand, left hand, they don't know their hand from another. 120,000 children, plus teens, plus old, that's a lot of people. My heart goes out to them, and I want to spare them. I want to save them. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And Jonah says, no. Why? So they're not on the same page. So when I see Jonah at the great reunion, I don't know. It's the only book that answers the question. I don't know. See, but the second lesson of Jonah is to pair with um, God's hands are stronger than you think. It's also really good to know, and I want this to go deep for you. In chapters 3 and 4, we know that God's heart is much softer than you think. God's heart is much softer than you think. So we have that God. His hands are stronger than you think. His heart is softer than you think. And in that sense, when he talks about Jonah in Matthew and in Luke, Luke, Matthew 12 and Luke 11, he talks about Jonah. He says, Jonah is like me. I compare myself to this prophet. And sitting underneath that is that uh, as I portray the character of God in my uh, 33 years on earth and willing to die for you, now my hands are strong. Don't mess around with me. And my heart is soft. Don't run away. Come closer. Okay? That's a God, a God of Jonah that I think all of us can live with and even welcome. I pray that it might be so.